Well, the question that I want us to ponder this morning as we go to God's word is, where can hope be found? It's the title of the message, Where Can Hope Be Found? We're spending the summer in the Psalms, as we've talked about already, and we're kind of using this framework, uh, this storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And a few weeks ago, we had our outdoor service, and we talked about Psalm 1, and kind of gave an overview of, of this idea of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And I want to just reiterate those things here this morning, and there were questions that went along with each one of those sections. So question for the creation section is, why is there something rather than nothing? Right? Kind of a universal question that most people wrestle with. And then the fall section. What's gone wrong in the cosmos? Or we could say, what's gone wrong in here, right? What's wrong with our hearts? What's wrong with our lives? The redemption question. Is there any hope? Again, a a very universal question that people ask. Is there any hope? And the consummation question. How will history end? How is this all going to pan out? Is there any hope Beyond this life, what will happen to us after we die? Again, a very universal question. And the psalms that we're covering this summer, they don't necessarily all fit neatly into the, to the one category that we're talking about. But we've tried to pick psalms, especially as we transition from one section to the next, where this is our last section, our last psalm in the creation section, then we'll be doing the fall section next week. So kind of trying to pick psalms that that show the transition from section to section. And I really like Psalm 33 because it has elements of all four of these sections, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. We're going to see that uh, in Psalm 33. And especially it helps us to answer the redemption question, is there any hope? So as we observe the world around us, uh, both currently in our current cultural moment and throughout history, There is no denying that there is a longing for answers. Answers to these four questions in particular, and then a longing for answers to many other questions that we ask. There is a longing for hope. That feeling that there's got to be more than this. There's got to be something else. Or there's got to be relief from the pain and the strife and the suffering And ultimately, the death that awaits us all. The question that I want to put to us this morning is where are we looking for hope? Where are you and I looking for hope in our lives? When sickness and pain wreak havoc on our bodies and the bodies and minds of of those we love. When the bank account drains faster than it fills back up. When marriage relationships and parenting and peer relationships and relationships with our coworkers feel like they suck the life and the energy out of us. And when conflict in those relationships sometimes feels like it will never be resolved. Maybe it feels like there's no, there's no glimmer of hope, there's no way out. What do we do? Do we hunker down? Do we just try harder? Do we look inward 
to our own strength? Does self-help and self-therapy become our source of hope? Or do we look outside of ourselves? Outside of ourselves to the God who has answered all of these questions that we might be asking in his word. This summer, can we read and can we sing these songs of praise, these songs of lament, these songs of thanksgiving in Israel's songbook, the Psalms? And can we be comforted and reminded that we're not the first ones in the history of the world to wrestle with these questions? We're not the first people in the history of the world to feel anxiety about what's going on around us or what's going on in our own lives. Can we look to God and try to walk with him in this difficult age that we live in? As we go to Psalm 33, I think we will find the answer to this question. Let's go to God's word, Psalm 33. Please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth, he who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The warhorse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you speak to your people. Thank you that you speak words of comfort and hope, that you speak truth about who you are. God, may we see you today for who you are in your word. May we see the truth about you. May we long for you. 
May we wait for you. May we find our joy in you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Derek Kidner, in his commentary on the Psalms, Psalm 33, he says, If the purest form of a hymn of praise to God, if the purest form of a hymn is praise to God for what he is and does, this is a fine example. And Psalm 33 is just that. It praises God for who he is and what he has done. And then it invites us to two seemingly opposite but equally important responses which bookend this psalm. We're going to look at those. Two seemingly opposite but equally important responses. The first response is in verses 1 to 3. It's a response of worship, and it answers the question of of why. Why we should worship God. In verses 1 to 3, there are five imperatives, five things that we are commanded to do. Shout for joy to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Make melody to Him. Sing to Him a new song. Play skillfully. All of these things involve noise. They involve our voices. They involve instruments. This is the first time in the Psalms that instruments are mentioned in worship. And this type of this type of noise, this type of music and singing is a response to who God is. It's an appropriate response. It's a response that we should have in our times of corporate worship. It's a response that we should have in our times of private worship and family worship. You know, maybe you don't play instruments or you're not proficient in get a just have the kids start banging on the table or something. Just make a joyful noise, right? Make a joyful noise to the Lord. It's an appropriate response. And then we ask the question, well, why? Why should we do this? Why should we make a bunch of noise? Why should we sing loudly with our voices? And I love this psalm because it answers the question very clearly in verses 4 and 5. It starts with the word for or because. Why should we praise the Lord? And it talks about God's word and God's work. Because the word of the Lord is upright. Because all his work is done in faithfulness. His word is upright. That means that it's, this Hebrew word means straight or smooth. It's not crooked or bumpy. And a lot of the times it talks about the the way of the Lord or the, the Lord leading his people in a straight way. His word is upright. The path of the Lord is a straight path that we are to walk in. Kind of the opposite picture of this comes at the end of the book of Judges. It says there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right. Same word, right? Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Okay, you see the difference there? The word of the Lord is is right, is upright, and people are doing what is right in their own eyes. God's word is upright. It is true. Therefore, he is worthy of our praise and our worship. And then it says that his work is done in faithfulness. We can trust him. We can trust that he is going to do what he says he is going to do. 
In other words, his word and his work, they always match up. They always go together. There can be no hypocrisy in him. Unlike us, right? We say one thing and we do another thing. God cannot do that. He cannot lie. He cannot go against his word. So his word is true and his faithfulness is, his works are all done in faithfulness. And verse 5 speaks to this idea. He loves righteousness and justice. This is not saying that the Lord loves to see righteousness and justice being done, though he does. He loves righteousness and justice, meaning this is who he is. His very nature, his very character is one of righteousness and justice. He is righteous. He is just. He is full of steadfast love and faithfulness. I think these four terms here are one of the most beautiful descriptions of who God is. We see this in Psalm 89 verse 14. It says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. It's talking about God as the king. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. And this ties all these descriptions of the Lord together. And again, points to his majesty as the king over all the earth. Similar language is used in Psalm 97 verses 1 and 2. It says, the Lord reigns, let all the earth rejoice, it calls us to a response. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. The rest of Psalm 97 goes on to talk about God's role as creator and king. And it echoes Psalm 19 that we saw last week. The heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Verse 6 of Psalm uh, 97 says, The heavens proclaim his righteousness. So his glory, his righteousness, his faithfulness, his steadfast love, all of these things are seen in his creation. And I think the how, how we should worship, and the why of worship makes sense when we rightly embrace who God is. And this why question... This why question can be very frustrating sometimes when we're the ones asking it. We've all been the kid asking our parents, why is the sky blue, right? Why is water wet? Why can't I stick a knife in the toaster or in the electrical socket, right? Why can't I eat ice cream after 10 p.m.? (laughs) As a parent, trust me, Answering the why question sometimes can be infuriating. A lot of times the answer is, because I said so. Which might be a true and appropriate response sometimes. But it doesn't always get at the heart of the question. Why should we worship God? Why should we sing with our voices and play with instruments Because he said so, (laughs) right? God saying because I said so and parents saying because I said so aren't exactly the same thing. God's word holds that authority because of who he is. At our summer conversation on Wednesday night, 
Danny Heineman, uh, RUF minister at UW-Madison, shared with us, and, and it, was a, it was a challenging conversation, and we talked a lot about a lot of things that are going on in our world, and, and the challenges sometimes we have of interacting with other people, and, and sharing the gospel, and living in this increasingly secular age. And at the end, I kind of reiterated that, and I, I asked Danny to give us a charge to give us some encouragement in light of the things that we had talked about as we face this difficult task of communicating truth in this secular and distracted age. Do you remember what he said? If you were there, one of the things he said, go to church, (laughs) right? And I said, amen, right? Go to church, be with God's people, worship the Lord But don't just come here to be with other people. Don't come here to listen to me speak. Come here to worship the Lord and to hear him speak. This is your one place of refuge that you can come in your week and hear the Lord speak. Not that he doesn't speak to us in our our personal devotion times and, and times with him, but corporate worship is so important in our lives. So I'm gonna reiterate what he said. Go to church, okay? Go to church. And then, what did he say after that? Invite your friends, right? The world around us, with all the distractions, with all the confusion, they, I, like, listen, I love like recommending a podcast or a book or something to, to my, my friends who aren't Christians. Hey, like read this, think about these things. I love meeting over coffee. But ultimately, I think they need to come in, right? They need to see what's going on here. They need to see what's different. Like, what are you Christians all about? Because I can talk about it. You can talk about it with them. But until they see it, until they see a bunch of people coming together who probably, you know, we've talked about this, we wouldn't all, necess- if it was Sunday morning and we didn't have anything else going on, like we wouldn't all just hang out just for the sake of hanging out, right? God brings people who are different, who come from different backgrounds, different interests, right? He brings us together here. And our world, the world around us needs to see that. They need to see that love that we have for one another. They need to see the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to bring people to Christ and then bring them together in Christ. They need to see us not just going through the motions, but really loving one another and truly worshiping our Father So Living Stone, let's be that kind of church. Let's be that kind of people who trust our creator and king and respond to him appropriately in our worship and our service of him and others. Now we're going to look at the middle section of this psalm, verses 6 through 19. If you're taking notes, we're going to see three things. We're going to see God's role as creator and king. We're going to see two competing counsels, and we're going to see two competing hopes. So again, God's role as creator and king, two competing counsels, two competing hopes. First, God's role as creator. We see this in verses 6 through 9. We see that God made it all by his word. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Verse 9, he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. 
There are echoes here of Genesis chapter 1, of the creation account, that God made the world, that he spoke all of creation into existence. And then just as we saw the appropriate response in verses 1 to 3, there's a response here in verse 8. This is a universal call, a universal response that is required. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. The heavens declare his glory. It can be seen by everyone and the appropriate response that is required of every human being who has ever lived is to fear the Lord and to stand in awe of him. That's his role as creator. Then his role as king in verses 10 through 19. This is seen in the two competing councils and the two competing hopes. First, the two competing councils. Verse 10, the council of the nations. The Lord brings the council of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. We actually see this language in the opening of Psalm 2. Where it says, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That type of scheming, that type of plotting is destined to fail. And we see that language throughout the Psalms of, these, of people gathering, of, of plotting against the Lord, of, of wickedness. But God will bring that counsel to nothing He will frustrate those plans. Those plans will not ultimately prevail. That council of the nations is contrasted with the council of the Lord in verse 11. The council of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. His council stands forever. That's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a prayer that acknowledges that God is the king over all the earth and that history is moving towards a purposeful ending and a purposeful goal. The plans of his heart stand to all generations. From generation to generation, the plans of the Lord will stand. His counsel means his instruction in his word. It's instruction that we can trust Again, because the Lord will always do what he says he will do. We can trust his counsel. Verse 12, I just want to say a quick side note on this. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. If you Google Psalm 33, verse 12, and the images come up, The first one that I saw, happy 4th of July with an American flag and this verse on it, okay? This verse is not for t-shirts and coffee mugs with an American flag on it, okay? This verse is talking about the church of Jesus Christ. We are the people, we are the nation that God has chosen as his heritage, Now, no doubt in its original context here in Psalm 33, this was about the nation of Israel. It was about the nation, the people that God had chosen. Now, it's about us. It's about Christ's 
people gathered from every tribe and language and people and nation, which Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says about the church, about Christians, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Do not be fooled by the idolatry of American exceptionalism and the supposed favor on us as a nation. That's all I'm going to say about that. I would be more than happy to talk with you about this after the service. Well, we continue to see the kingly role and the rule of God in verses 13 through 19 as it is contrasted with the strength of humans and beasts. God sees it all. Verse 13, the Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. There is no fooling him. There is no fooling the Lord. He made our hearts. Contrast that with verse 11. The plans of his heart to all generations, right? Our hearts, he knows our hearts. He knows the folly in our hearts. And he knows our deeds, right? He sees us, he sees, he observes all our deeds. And our deeds are what? They're wicked. And it's contrasted with what we saw in verses, in verse five. He loves Righteousness and justice, the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. So we we begin here to start to see these contrasts between God and us. And we start to see the reality of the fall, right? We start to see what happens to us because of sin. How God is, is pure and holy and righteous, and we are not. We are fallen creatures, and we're going to be digging into that theme a lot over the next three weeks. And then the psalmist gets very specific here, beginning in verse 16. And James, thank you for pointing these things out to the kids. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. This language here of deliverance and salvation and rescue... This is the longing of every human who has ever lived. A longing for deliverance from the effects of this fallen world. And the natural fallen inclination of our hearts is to look to human power, right? To look to armies and these parts of the armies that we see. And what we do see from this psalm is a failure of all of these things pictured, and that's pictured especially in the war horse. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. So the two competing hopes, the first one is the hope in, in men, in beasts, in, in our plans, in our schemes. But we see here in this psalm that our only hope is in the God who sees it all. Our only hope for deliverance is in the God who sees it all. Verses 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine 
delivering their soul from death. This is answering those redemption and consummation questions. Is there any hope? And what's going to happen to us after we die? The Lord will deliver our souls from death if we hope in him. And he will keep us alive in famine. I think the imagery here ties in well with Psalm 1 and Jeremiah 17, the image of the tree. The tree whose leaf does not wither. The tree who does not fear when, time, when heat comes is not anxious in the year of drought and it does not cease to bear fruit. In other words, it is kept alive in the famine. In Psalm 1, it's a picture of the person who delights in the law of the Lord and who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. In Jeremiah 17, it's a picture of the person who trusts in the Lord. So what does this imagery evoke in our hearts? Both this imagery of failure of armies and warriors and war horses and this imagery of, of the tree, this imagery of being delivered, of being saved by the Lord and being sustained by the Lord. Well, thankfully, the, the psalm doesn't end here. It doesn't leave us hanging, doesn't leave us left to guess how we should feel. The psalmist tells us in the last three verses where we get a clear answer to our question of where hope can be found. So where can our hope be found? It's interesting, if you look at this psalm, talked about how it kind of is bookended by two different responses. A lot of commentators point out how the, the difference between the beginning and the end. The, the beginning is this loud, jubilant, joyous burst of praise. It's active and it's loud. And then the psalm ends with this quiet trust, this quiet hope. Notice the words that we see in verses 20 and 21. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Notice these words here. Our soul waits. He is our help, our shield. Our heart is glad in him. We trust in his holy name. These are corporate pictures of us gathered together as the people of God, trusting in the Lord together. That's one of the beautiful things about the Psalms. There's a lot of individual Psalms uh, throughout the 150 Psalms that are maybe David just talking about his own struggles. But there are many corporate Psalms. And these are great for us to get a picture of what it looks like as the people of God to wait, to trust, to hope together. Then the appeal in verse 22 to the Lord. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. So my question is, do we do we hope in him? Do we hope in him alone for deliverance, for salvation? Do we hope in him alone to keep us alive in the time of famine? What did this hope look like for the psalmist and for his contemporaries? It was mostly forward-looking. Obviously, God had already delivered them from earthly enemies in the Exodus, delivering them out of Egypt. 
But their ultimate hope was still a hope of future deliverance. In fact, a hope in a future deliverer. This messianic hope is strong throughout the Psalms. I think I might have mentioned it a couple weeks ago, you know, the question of which, which one of the Psalms are messianic Psalms. And, and the answer is all of them, right? All of the Psalms point us to Jesus. Now there's some, Psalm 22, Psalm 110, that are very specific, that are quoted in the New Testament. But all of the Psalms are messianic. They all point forward to the hope that can be found in Christ alone. But I love this psalm because it looks back at who the Lord is as creator, as king, as judge, as deliverer, but it also looks forward. And for us today as God's redeemed people, the church, we also look back, right? We look back to the incarnation and the life and the death and the resurrection of our Lord He is the creator and the king and the judge and the deliverer, just as this psalm says. But we also look forward. We look forward in hope. Hope that is found in the gospel. Hope that is found in the truth of who Jesus is. Hope that looks to the majesty and perfection of God's creation. Hope that laments the tragedy of our fall into sin. Hope that rejoices in the redemption that Christ has accomplished for his church. And hope that looks forward to the glorious return and reign of Christ when we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Brothers and sisters, let us hope in Christ both now and forevermore. Let's pray together. God, thank you that this song written thousands of years ago to be sung corporately by your people as they gathered together to worship you, that we can stand here thousands of years later, that we can look back, that we can see these truths of who you are and of what you have, and what you have done and how those, those truths carry over for us today as your people, as we try to walk out our faith in Christ in the world around us, as we try to live with hope in a world that can feel hopeless at times. God, help our souls to wait upon you. Help our souls to hope in you, to trust in your holy name. God, give us eyes to see, give us hearts to embrace you, to live our lives for you, and then to go out into the world around us and proclaim the goodness of who you are. We pray you, praise you in Jesus' name.